Good evening and welcome to Shattered Lives, a lively, educational, and issues-driven radio show designed to tell another side of the story, to focus on and humanize crime victims, to enlighten and shine the spotlight on organizations and service providers, and to assist those who walk the path with us. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you this Saturday and every Saturday evening for um, education, awareness, uh, enlightenment, and um, entertainment as well, primarily focusing on the issues surrounding the aftermath of crime. And uh, so I welcome everyone this evening to a lovely um, Saturday here in Connecticut. Um, it's probably the first weekend that I can say is probably, a, you know, a, a, a 10 on the scale of 1 to 10, and it's about time. Um, so uh, we are very anxious to, to speak to a, a service provider this evening that deals uh, strictly with um, victim service programming, and I think we haven't done that in quite a while, so we're looking forward to that. And before I bring her on, just want to welcome in Delilah. Good evening, Delilah, and how are you? Hey, Donna, doing fine. Another lovely Saturday afternoon on the radio. And uh, yes, again, like just not to repeat you, but to just let our listeners know, this is going to be a, a very informative hour um, with our guest and, and who comes from very, very close to my hometown. So it's <laughs> interesting to have her, her ever on. It's been a long time since I've been back there, but that's okay. And um, and to know that these services are available to the to the community. Um, and hopefully, with the with the listeners that we have, and with the information that we we um, pass on to them, other communities and other victim service providers may be able to get some ideas to um, enhance their programs or uh, create new programs. In some cases, there's never ever enough resources for victims of crime, no matter what crime it is. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it, said it any better myself. I think you're you're absolutely right. So just because our guest, uh, Leanne Graham, is from the Akron, Ohio area, and I believe that's Summit County, um, does not mean that these are not transferable skills or it will set off a light bulb in somebody and say, aha, that's a great idea for us, or maybe we need to call Leanne and talk about this. Um, and just before, just as a, a very short um, uh, introduction, I believe she's she's sort of a second generation, second tier person in victim services. If you compare it to the era when victim services first started, but not only that, um, it, they have a special um, a special distinction in terms of being one of the first in the entire country, and. I believe, if I'm not wrong, and she can tell us a lot more about that, she is surrounded by people within her family uh, that has to do with uh, law enforcement, Department of Corrections, and the like. So I think it's probably in her blood. So mm-hmm. without further ado, um, Leanne Graham, um, good evening and welcome to Shattered Lives. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you very much. It's very exciting to be on the show this evening. 
Well, we're we're so glad to have you. As Delilah said, and and she's very um, excited to know that near her hometown, the mm-hmm. services are thriving. Um, why don't you why don't you tell us a, a bit a, a bit about your your background and then maybe how you came to be where you are now because you're sort of a transplant, aren't you? <laughs> I am a transplant from your neck of the woods. Yes. Um, originally from Massachusetts, born and raised. Uh-huh. All my family uh-huh. is still back there. And, um, you know, you, you did touch on having some law enforcement and some justice in my blood, and that is definitely true. My, um, I grew up, my father was a superintendent or a warden of a our county correctional facility back in Plymouth, Massachusetts. So growing up, I was always able to visit the jail, and um, it was a working jail, and they had a farm where the inmates actually, you know, worked on, worked on the farm all day long. And so that kind of was an eye-opening experience. Um, I did grow up um, having a different view of inmates, um, as did just other individuals who would never encounter them. And on, in addition to that, my grandfather was the chief of police of a small town called in Braintree, Massachusetts. So mm-hmm. um, growing up, I had kind of both of those figures in my life to kind of emulate and to see, um, you know, what a significant um, gift that they were doing as far as being part of our justice system. And I kind mm-hmm. of got both sides of it, you know, from the beginning side, from from my grandfather of the from the arrest, then to my father who was actually um, overseeing while they were incarcerated. So as I got to grow up, I I realized that was the field I wanted to go in. And at the time, I was eager and young and thought that hey, I can help rehabilitate these individuals, and you know, they so they won't hurt anyone anymore. And that was really my track um, focus. So my my decision to go to um, receive my bachelor's degree in criminology and law at Suffolk University in Boston uh, gave me an, just an eye-opening experience. I then did an intern um, legislative internship at Massachusetts uh, State House and um, saw how laws were enacted and legislation, how that worked. Um, fortunately, uh, I was hand-picked, um, I guess or randomly picked, to sit on a federal grand jury in um, in Boston for 18 months, oh, and I really? was only 19 years old, and um, you know, walking into this beautiful court, federal courthouse, um, listening to the the individuals that we were working on indicting, and you know, me, this young, eager criminal justice major, was uh, very excited to be, see that and be exposed to that side of the law, also. Um, so, you know, all my papers were always about corrections, always about, um, criminal justice. And, um, I decided to, to go to grad school, but I really wanted to ensure that my, my ability to be a leader was an ability to be, um, respected in that I didn't want to just be handed a a job. And with the, the family influence that I had, um, our, our name, um, was a unique name, so people did did know the last name. I I really wanted to just start fresh and um, use my my knowledge and my talents and my education to just kind of start from the bottom and work my way up. And so when I moved to Ohio, I um, decided to go to grad school at Kent State University, and 
before, I, I really did want to jump into corrections and start as a correction officer. But before that, I said, you know, I really want, and if I really want to rehabilitate and help these inmates, I really know have to know what the victims went through. And so I decided I should, you know, work with the victims to get a firsthand knowledge of of what they went through. So I, my first job was with the Children Who Witness Violence Program um, through Children's Hospital and Victim Assistance. So in 2002, um, I met Dr. Robert Denton for the first time and um, became employed there as a volunteer, actually, and then that evolved into a, a full-time position. And um, after working with children to see, you know, the effects that they endure after witnessing these crimes, I then wanted to work with the, the victims themselves, and I became the manager of the local domestic violence shelter, um, known as the Battered Women Shelter. And that was a transitional shelter. It had 40 beds for women as well as their children, and I was able to meet with them and hear their stories and, and help them through case management and empower them to um, kind of get back on their feet. And that was really an eye-opening experience for me. Um, it was kind of that light bulb went off when, when I kind of said, what, what am I doing? You know, why do I want to go and, and work in corrections and work on rehabilitating these individuals? I, I kind of had a, just a paradigm shift where I felt that, you know, unfortunately there was always going to be the criminals that are going to just you know, not be able to, to rehabilitate. So mm-hmm. I wanted to devote my time to the individuals who I felt really needed it, and that and being victims. And you could make a greater <laughs> contribution to victims versus in corrections at that Absolutely. point in time? Absolutely, yes. So yeah. um, it was like a light light switch went off, and um, <laughs> I had matured and realized uh-huh. that victims were the way to go. And um, I knew that um, I wanted to lead others um, just with my passion and um I then went forth into um, learning about grants and management and development and kind of the behind the scenes of nonprofit and to what it takes to actually run an agency to help victims, you know, on a communal scale. And mm-hmm. um, it was actually then I was selected to represent the agency in a learning, a leadership program, where I met my husband, who is a detective sergeant with our local police department. So um, we met in this class, and it was kind of a running joke because it was obviously a work-related issue to help uh, families in our community. But um, we hit it off and um, <laughs> was married five five years later and still married today and looking forward to the rest of our lives together. Well, so, um, that's, that's kind of my you have, you know, so many, so many people, it's almost like that TV show, what is it, Blue Bloods or something like that, where everyone in the family and, and they just, you know, they, they make it work, which is great. Yes. Um, no, we are a big fan of Blue Bloods, Tom Selleck. Oh. And it's really nice. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um, you know, my, my husband, Bruce, is very supportive and it's um, a very um, humbling job to be in at victim assistance. And when I left the battered women's shelter and, and applied for the job um, to be the, become the executive director at victim assistance, it was, um, you know, a decision both with my husband and I that this is, this isn't your nine to five job. You know, this is your, your dedicated, this is your life's passion and your, your career goals. And so um, I'm very thankful to have such a supportive family. Um, right. right. 
to be able to devote to victims. Well, I would imagine also working in a shelter is not really enough. We've had uh, someone from um, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and it sounds like that takes a tremendous amount. I mean, you're sort of always on call with with that as well. But um, can you tell us, like, how how things have changed? With, well, what? How did you start out when you got this position from Dr. Denton? What were what was the ground, uh, the, the basic framework that he established? What were he working with? And maybe over time, how has, have things changed since since that time? Well, I was very lucky that, um, you know, Dr. Denton kind of left a legacy, um, already laid out, already laid the groundwork, already had the structure of the mission, the programs there, that um, he knew it worked. And so that was just a blessing to me, knowing that I could just walk into an agency and trust that um, that that our, our agency works and our community believes in us and we are a stronghold and I just need to pretty much sustain it but also enhance it, you know, um, changing with the times and updating some things but always staying true to the mission of the agency and the base. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm very fortunate that he left me with those two strongholds that I knew that they they didn't need to be touched. Mm-hmm. Well, can you paint for us a little picture in terms of demographically what Summit County is like and what are the, you know, primary needs there, you know, in the, the family and the and the, the services that are primarily needed? I mean, maybe it's like most places, but then again, maybe it's not. Yeah, I would say it's like most places, but we are very fortunate to have um, a community. Um, Akron is the home um the city, the county seat in Summit County, which is where the agency is located, but we do serve our entire county. And um, Akron is more of a city, and the there's probably three major cities in the county, Akron, Barberton, and Cuyahoga Falls. And the outlying um, townships or cities also are just um, – Maybe not as busy and not uh, not as high crime rates as the three that I mentioned, but Akron is um, is home to. Well, let me see. I, I guess Summit County um, population is going to be about um, 550,000 people um, in our county, and in Akron, there's probably about 200,000. So the majority mm-hmm. of clients that we do serve are from the city limits of Akron, um, but I would assume just like any other. Um, city in our country, our crime rates are high, but they are decreasing just like the rest of the country um, with our um, uh, criminal cases, um, violent crime. However, there it's just uh, along the, the spectrum from your robberies to your sexual assault to your homicide. Akron has approximately 23 homicides per year, and in the entire county, probably have about I'd say 35 a year. So um, it it runs the whole gamut. And with the services, Mm -hmm. obviously need victim services to help all those different types of victimizations from the sexual assault, domestic violence, 
in in between. And mm-hmm. I think that's what's so special about Summit County is that we are able to address every single victimization from um, even the victimizations that don't reach our criminal justice system, that individuals choose not to involve police, there's still help out there for them. Whereas there's other places in our in our country where some victims will only receive assistance if they are engaged in the in the court process and the felon if it's a felony, they may not have any other access to a victim advocate. Um, Domestic violence shelters are pretty common throughout our country, but there are still communities that don't have that either. Also, sexual right. advocates and um, sane nurses, sexual assault nurse examiners. So, mm-hmm. um, throughout the country, I know it's um, it's a hit or miss. You know what is, what your community is like, whether you have access. But here in Summit County, we're really blessed. How many how many staff do you have, do you have to to do all of all of these services? People are pretty surprised when I, I tell them we have 17 staff. However, um, we only have 10 advocates. So the advocates are the individuals that work one-on-one direct service with the clients. Um, however, we couldn't do it without the help of our volunteers and interns. So we have two local universities close by, Akron University and Kent State University. So we get approximately, we cut it off at around 10 interns per semester um, because it's really a unique experience that we're able to share and help train up-and-coming social workers or criminal justice majors um, in to, to kind of open their eyes to the entire justice system. So it takes probably 25, 30 of us um, as a whole to serve the individuals we do, and on average, on a yearly basis, we serve over 6,000 victims a year. Wow. Well, that's that's great. What 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 do the students, um, what are some of their comments that they might tell you out there? Now, are these like maybe uh, three-month experiences or six-month experiences through the Department of Social Work or Psychology or whatnot? Yes, um, and they vary. So some will some will be with us for one semester for three months, some for an entire year, um, whether they do the um, fall, summer, and spring. So sometimes we'll have them for different lengths, and they do everything that we do. We train them. They um, have to receive 40 hours of our um, training academy, which is the same training that our staff receive, and they are not allowed to meet with a victim before finishing that training, and then they're shadowed. Um, They do some observation to watch the advocates in action, and then we will shadow them to ensure that, you know, they are helping victims as much as as we had hoped that they would. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you have a a list for for people who, who wait to get in. It sounds like it may be very popular, huh? It is. It's very unique because um, we we like to make it an experience for them. They they're not going to come pushing papers and cleaning our fridge or anything like that. We want to um, make sure that they're exposed oh, to as much as possible. And because we're so fortunate, and we are ingrained in all of the different aspects. Um, we take them on a tour. Um, of our local coroner's office. We make sure that they sit through arraignment, they sit through a trial, they sit through a victim impact statement, um, they do a police ride-along, um, help victims in grand jury. So the whole entire process. Wow. Um, yeah, it's very unique. It's, and go out to crime scenes, that's another one. Yeah. Uh, Lila, have you heard of any other program that maybe does that with their volunteers? 
to your knowledge? Yeah, I think I think a lot of them throughout the country do uh, something similar. Similar to that? Well, mm-hmm. I, I guess I just hadn't zeroed in on that particular feature. That's that that's mm-hmm. great. And then I imagine maybe you influence them in terms of their majors and what they want to do after that experience, I would say. You know, it would seem well, to me some of them realize that maybe social work's not for them after they've already gone through a few years of classes and courses because um, yeah. the majority are social workers in criminal justice. Um, right. So, you know, once they actually have the experience to do the one-on-one or go to a crime scene, they realize this oh. isn't what they mm-hmm. thought it was going to be. And so uh-huh. I think that exposure is so great because – it helps them realize before going into a job right. um, that that's not where they're going to be happy. And yeah. we also are, are pretty straightforward with them and let them know, like, this this is a tough job. You know, you may not be cut out for it, you know, if they're, mm-hmm. they're very meek or very shy and they have to force themselves to go have a conversation with someone. Probably not the profession you want to be right. in if, if you're um, afraid to talk to people. Yeah, well, I think it's a wonderful uh, experience for them to be able to read that because, you know, when you're going through school and you're, you know, in your young 20s, you don't really know what you want to do for the rest of your life. Who does? Mm-hmm. And then to, to make that financial commitment and to know, you know, this is what, although they say now we all have may need five major careers instead of jobs, I don't know. But uh, I went to school a long time ago. I think I'm a little bit older than you, but... Anyway, I, I think it's it's wonderful to do that. Um, with respect to um, when when victims are wanting to know your services, we had a little bit of a chat offline here in terms of looking online. You know, everything is is very social media focused these days, and um, I was struck a little bit with you know sort of the sparseness of of how your program is presented, but then when you explained it to me, um, when people want to go and are looking for information, like I say, they don't want a lot of um, glitz and glamour maybe. Um, how, did, how did you structure that? And is it if someone is looking for services, how, how would you walk them through it both online and otherwise if you just had to tell people? Well, there's a lot of different avenues that people are referred to us, um, most being word of mouth. I think, you know, if an agency is good at their services and you have great, great experiences with helping people, that's going to spread. Unfortunately, you can't always depend on that. You These days, we need to depend on our, our online activities, first being our website, which is www.victimassistanceprogram.org, mm-hmm. and we were very fortunate um, because, as as like other other nonprofit organizations, we don't have a lot of a lot of money to spend on the extra stuff other than the advocates. So, when it comes to website development and design, we don't have a PR or marketing department. So, we applied for a contest um, through a local um, advertising company and marketing company known as White Space Creative, and they are so great in our community as. For the past, I don't even know how many years, I'd say over 10 years now, they have been gifting um, over $25,000 worth of marketing service to local nonprofits. And um, we won that contest, and they designed um, a new logo for us, our new brochures, as well as our new website. 
So we went in and met with them, and they said, you know, who is your audience? Um, and obviously, I would think every nonprofit wants to to say their audience is the the individuals that need services, but also donors, um, because we 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 need to to let people know that we are in need of financial support. However, with you know victim assistance, why we're so special is sometimes you know we always think of. What is most important is our services to victims. And although, yes, we need money to do those services, victims come first. So we really decided that our website should be geared to victims. And after lots of discussion about that, we were very surprised at the unveiling. Um, When we saw the homepage of our new website, it was very white, very, very clean, um, and very... Um, very structured and very organized. And what it reminded me was like the Google website. It's very white and it just has, and actually it's the white space. It's very clean and then it just has a box. So you know exactly what you need to do when you go on that website. So as a victim who is in crisis or in need and just kind of desperate for help and doesn't know what to do, if a victim was to go to our website, it's very straightforward. They don't have a lot of pictures to look at. There's no video. There's no extra fluff. It's literally um, what are our services, victimization. So they're able to find the information that need they need as soon as possible without having to look for it. And so we were very impressed by the designers at White Space Creative. Um, it's headed up by a gentleman named Kevin White, who's just uh, very philanthropic and very attuned to just companies' needs. And are those are the are those is that particular entity uh, is that offered for anybody in Ohio? I mean, the, those PR services. I oh yes, and um, he's a community partner. Yeah, he is. He um, their their business would pretty much help help any organization, um, but also I mean lots of businesses as well. I think there is mm-hmm. another. Um, White Space Creative uh, located in North Carolina, but I'm not quite sure of that. Oh, that's interesting to know. Um, we we have friends and nonprofits in North Carolina too. Maybe yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. Uh, yes, certainly, certainly. Um, can you tell us a bit? I know when we were chatting on the phone at, uh, a while back that you know, um, well, you might want to mention. I know you don't like to say that you're the 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 first. Uh, <laughs> The first of your kind in the nation, because there's a little bit of a controversy there. Like the town that was founded first in Connecticut, there's always a fight between two towns. And I know that is too, but when Tim Dimoff was telling me about you and your good group, that's how we introduced it. Can you just Mm -hmm. let people know why there's a conversation about that? And maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't, but somebody has to be first and second. Right, Liam? Absolutely. <laughs> well, I don't want to take credit for something that, you know, that isn't true. So that's right. why the, the the jury's still out. Um, I have to do some more homework and some more digging. You know, back when um, when the grassroots organizations started popping up through when the victims movement was really like at its peak, um, there was a lot of conversations going on, a lot of programs starting, but, you know, no one really stops to to really say, like, hey, maybe we should document this date, this time, that we're having this epiphany, that we're we're creating this program. So, right. um, you know, as the the founder tells our story, um, 
the outline of the, our agency was actually just drawn on the back of a napkin at a restaurant while um, he and some other people in our community were out to lunch. So if I could find that napkin, if I could find a date when that was, you know, that would be able to solidify our actual start date. But um, we do we do know it was in 1972, um, and I've done a little digging, and I see that there was also a, a an agency that's actually still in existence in Missouri that um, provides victim um, advocacy services. So they started in 1972 as well. So I just need to oh. work on that to see um, you know who came first. But but who cares? You know or that that's what I say. It's always important to know that regardless of who started it first, that we both had the initiative to do so back then, That's which true. was at a time in our history that it was so needed. And, um, you know, we have just so many different individuals to thank for being aggressive, being assertive, and saying, you know, we're not going to take no for an answer. These victims need us to help them through this, and we need to make sure that they're they're heard, that we need to make sure that they don't go through this alone and legitimize what, you know, we have today as victim advocacy services. Right. And well, Leanne, maybe to, you could maybe you could quickly go through um not the laundry list, but the what type of crime victims um are you seeing most often coming to you for resources? Are you are you seeing a wide variety or is there something that stands out in the in recent history that you're seeing a surge in a particular type of victim? Domestic violence is primarily our number one, I would say. Um, Next to that, individuals don't necessarily reach out to us. However, burglary victims is pretty high. We have a great relationship with our local law enforcement, and we receive copies of all of the police reports. So we make cold calls to all of the victims. And there's just a plethora of burglary victims. And, you know, with burglary, although it's not a crime that where there's physical injury or anything, there's there's still so much psychological um, victimization that, that goes on knowing right. that someone has invaded your personal space or has been in your home. Um, so we definitely reach out to those burglary victims. But aside from that, the one-on-ones we do is with domestic violence and some of um you know, some of our funders in our community ask, you know, why do we need services from victim assistance in addition to another agency, the Battered Women's Shelter, who only serves domestic violence victims? And, you know, is it a duplication of services? And I say absolutely not. And the unfortunate side to it is there's too many victims and not enough advocates. So even with two agencies helping these individuals, there's still um, – there's still a need for more advocates to help domestic violence victims. Well, what mm-hmm. type of specialized services do you have to offer? What kind of resources do you have, let's say, you know, for victims of domestic violence and victims of human trafficking, which some resources may be the same, there may be overlapping resources, but then there's also something specialized that each particular category is going to need. And can your can your agency provide that, or do you refer that out to other agencies? 
Well, we are very fortunate in that our advocates are trained on every single type of crime victimization. So across the board, whatever it is, human trafficking, domestic violence, our advocates are going to first provide crisis intervention. And um, that process is a structured process that they are trained to do, um, first ensuring that their safety and security is met, then ensuring they're providing some, um, letting the, the victim vent, um, providing them with some ventilation, and then validating the emotions and symptoms that they're enduring, and then finally um, predicting them for what could happen next um, in the criminal justice system or um, predict what type of symptoms they could continue to endure, and finally um, provide them with, uh, prepare them for the future with resources. So um, resources kind of goes into possibly our second type of service because I try to bo- boil down our core services into three, crisis intervention, court advocacy, and trauma therapy. So when we're talking about preparing them for the future and providing them with resources, we can walk them through the criminal justice system from sitting there in arraignment with them to helping them fill out a protection order or petition the court for a protection order or an anti-stalking protection order um, to helping with a victim impact statement, um, explaining the court process to them, telling them where to park, offering assistance to help them pay for parking, um, focusing on their, their safety needs. Sometimes that could be financial assistance with repairing locks um, if their house was broken into or if it's a domestic violence victim or a stalking victim um, where some some concerns are replacing windows. Those are some of the financial. We would also help um, any, let's say, a, um, a victim of a, a burglary that or a shooting where the windows were shot out. Maybe we would put a family up in a hotel for a night or two until we could get those windows fixed. And that is obviously all contingent upon our finances, but typically we we make sure we find the money to help those victims out. Um, With the the basic needs, you know, we always want to make sure everyone's basic human needs are met. And that is one area that we do tend to refer out a lot because we want to depend on our community and not duplicate services. So if there's a need for food um, and it's an emergency, um, we have some some gift cards to some local restaurants or some grocery stores. However, it's, if it's a an ongoing kind of need, there's plenty of pantries in our community that we would provide referrals to. Same with clothing. We we choose not to keep clothing on on site because there is so much in our community. And finally, housing, um, aside from the hotels for a couple nights stay, we would refer to our local domestic violence shelter. And in our community, they have two different locations. One's a crisis shelter, and then it's also a transitional shelter that a victim, um, female victim and their children up to um, age 18, including boys, um, will be able to stay there for pretty much an unlimited amount of time as long as they're progressing and working towards their case plan. Other than that, um, you know, we would we would help people relocate out of state if there was a safety concern with resources. I'm trying to jog my memory on. Do you do you have do you have an uh, uh, advocates that that do an ongoing uh, be proactive to do a specific safety plan for each. Uh, victim of domestic violence that you have? Yes, we do. Or? Yes, there there is a pretty lengthy, um, in-depth safety plan that is put out by NNEDV National Network. Oh, what NNEDV 
National Network to End Domestic Violence? To end Correct. To end it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah. it's so many acronyms, acronyms in our uh, profession. Right. <laughs> so the... Um, there's a very well drawn out safety plan that we we sit down and work. we don't just hand the paper over to them. We sit down and and let them think about like their daily lives. Think about okay, do you take the same route to work every single day? Do you have the same routine? Let's talk about switching it up a little bit. Let's talk about planning and having a to go bag. Um, let's talk about safety words and things like that, and um, maybe letting neighbors know. Hey, if you see this specific car around, just keep an eye out. So, yes, we we do safety planning with every single victim that that we work with. Mhm. Well, we we also have a particular um, preventative or a proactive tool that we might uh, share with you if you are receptive. That has been very very well well proven with with one of our colleagues. Because um, we're always willing to share resources with people, especially if they're very good and effective. So if, if you're willing, we, we we like to share that with you, perhaps. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we're always willing to learn something new. That's the way we're right. going to help more people. Right. And uh, Lila can certainly share that with you. I can share some things with you as well, too. Um with respect to, um, I know you had said that you're you're doing a particular initiative with regard to to human trafficking. Um, would you, and also the the you ride along with law enforcement and even make not only your notifications, you get involved in all types of victimization, including suicides. Correct. Yes, we do suicides as yes. well as traffic fatalities. Can you talk a little bit about what you do in in that in 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 that realm in terms of when you ride along with law enforcement and and what that's like and how effective that has been? Yes, I can, and it actually kind of can segue into the human trafficking to answer that question as well. Um, well back when our organization started, um, we we had a tremendous amount of support from our city chief, um, our Akron police chief back then, and he pretty much told our director, you can have anything you want except a, a walkie-talkie. So we had a an office up in the detective bureau. Um, we were able to discuss a relationship with law enforcement that still today, uh, Akron Police Department has a policy that does require their officers to contact victim assistance program if they encounter a victim that they feel could benefit from additional support. Um, So the officers kind of make that decision on their own and call us 24 hours a day and we go to the scene and we're able to provide crisis intervention, liaison with the victim and the officer, and it really helps the officer do their job. You know, a a lot of victims, when they're in crisis, they they want to know what's going on. They want answers. Um, and oftentimes the officers, um, you know, have to secure the crime scene. They have to ensure the safety of everyone. They need to investigate and interview. And unfortunately, you know, it's not really the officer's um, responsibility to tend to the emotional needs of the victim because they have so much to do. So they really see it as a 
as a benefit for us to be there to be able, because they want to comfort the victim, but they, they're not able to. So we're able to do that. And then, again, liaison, be that go-to, that question, and educate the victim about, you know, who is there, why they're there, what are they going to do, when are they going to be leaving, and things like that. So because of that um, relationship, obviously it took a long time because it, it takes some trust um, on behalf of the officers to let kind of someone into their world that's that's not law enforcement. We are just a nonprofit agency, and we earn that respect because we respect boundaries. We won't come in unless we're asked. Um, we won't disclose information unless the officer tells us to. So um, because of that, the officers noticed um, what a great job we were doing. And when they encountered families who had lost an individual um, who died by suicide, they started to call us um, to also comfort and provide crisis intervention to the family. Although it's not a crime, they they saw that the, the needs of the, the, the remaining family um, could benefit from our services. That also trickled over into traffic fatalities, um, accidents surrounding um, drunk driving. Not, I'm sorry, not accidents, um, deaths surrounding drunk driving. Um, in addition to that, um, infant infant deaths, where even if there, there was no criminal activity, we would also respond. So although it wasn't initially our mission of, of victim assistance, um, it kind of addressed the needs of the community. Officers saw the community needs this. There's no one else to provide assistance to them. So we... Um, we recently adjusted our mission, which is we empower our community to restore lives impacted by crisis, violence, and tragedy. Because anyone going through a tragedy, whatever you define that as, you're going to go through the same different um, psychological effects, just, just how our mind works, our brain works. And mm-hmm. the, the officers really appreciated that. So we also go to house fires um, on occasion. Um, so local, and pretty much anyone can give us a call. The the, the coroner's office can call us, law enforcement, um, the fire department, dispatchers. Anyone that's a first responder um, is able to call us to the scene. And it, along with the, the needs of the community, that's really where our initiative for human trafficking was developed in 2012, I was asked to sit on a panel along with some other victim service providers in our community in in addition to those from our neighboring um, city, Cleveland. And the discussion was about human trafficking. And human trafficking has been definitely the big buzzword um, because it's it's getting a lot of attention because um, we finally have a name for this type of victimization where we hadn't for so long. So it's getting a lot of attention and um, for quite some time now. And during that um, that workshop, there's probably over 100 people in the audience. And towards the end, um, one of the women said to the panel, um, how come Summit County doesn't have a collaborative like Cleveland does? Because Cleveland Collaborative was sharing all their great news and all their great initiatives. So um, at that time, uh, I looked to the looked to my right at a at a current colleague, and she said, "Do you want to do it?" And I said, "All right, let's do it." So so I yeah. said to the audience, "You know, we're going to take on this initiative, and we are going to create um, a Summit County Collaborative against human trafficking." 
and we'll send out an email. Anyone who wants to join, please do. So uh, that first meeting happened, and we had probably 60 people that came to that first meeting. And over time, it grew to about 90. And I've been the co-chair of the committee or the collaborator for two years now. And um, our our mission is to pretty much educate the community about human trafficking, um, educate them about what it is, what it looks like, um, and also, on the flip side, uh, focus on direct services. You know, c- currently our community is not prepared or was not at the time to assist de- um, human trafficking victims. So we need to make sure that when we do identify them, because sometimes um, they don't even know that they're victims, right. that we are capable and able to respond to their needs. And um, it all started because I called the National Human Trafficking Hotline, and I said, if I was a victim in Summit County, Ohio, and I wanted some assistance, who would you tell me to talk to? And they provided me with a phone number that had to deal with housing. And I called that phone number, and it was an answering machine. And it was press one if this, press two if this. And it went up to, like, press nine. And I was just floored. I mean, if I was a victim, I would have hung up at at press one. And so I called the national number back. I said, this is ridiculous. You need to change this immediately. Please put victim assistance crisis hotline number in your system as the um, the agency who was able to respond because although at the time the staff hadn't received specific training on human trafficking, they're all trained on crisis intervention. So as a Band-Aid, we can get through that phone call. We can get through the emergency crisis need. So at that time, um, they immediately switched it over. And since um, we've been the, the responding agency for our county for victims and able to help relocate a couple to our area um, and, you know, really made progress on identifying the services and the needs in our community um, with the significant help from the Ohio Task Force out of the Ohio Attorney General's Office, which has been fabulous. They've, they're really on top of their game um, to be able to help victim service providers in in kind of guiding us on what type of of programs are needed for these specific types of victims. Yeah, you. If you still have the same attorney general as you did, you know, about a year or so ago. Yeah, I. I, I was very impressed. Um, yes. What? How has it? How has it evolved in terms of your? Are you beyond the basic education? Well, this was back in 2012, so you probably are. Uh, are you? Are are you at the level now where you're just expanding the different venues in terms of identifying the problems and being able to provide more direct service beyond beyond the immediate crisis in in your area or what in terms of um, human trafficking? Where do you see it now as opposed to where it was in the beginning in terms of your growth? Well, it is a slow start because it's our entire community. Um, so the most significant gap is housing for victims. Um, one of the great um, progresses that our communities made, um, a Summit County-based agency, excuse me, agency has um, opened a, a house for human trafficking victims. However, it's a transitional housing, so it's not your your crisis housing. So temporarily, um, victims are able to stay at our local battered women's shelter. So we are able to address their immediate needs. It's not ideal. However, um, 
there there is discussion on you know still needing that emergency twenty four hour um, night for them because the services they need are very different than domestic violence victims. Um, however, um, they're they're getting a safe place to sleep, and I think that's most important. Is this like a large house where you may have a few others, like half a dozen people, or is this just uh, a, a residence where they can take one person at a time? No, it's uh, it's actual a uh, house that currently sleeps four, um, but I think that they are expanding, hoping to do 12 beds, and it's only for human trafficking victims, only females, and only adults. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that's that's a start, certainly. Yeah, Absolutely. How often, yeah. how often do you run into the fact that so many human trafficking victims, you know, we know them as victims, but a lot of times law enforcement sees them as witness. And how, how do you handle that? I mean, I, I know that they they do find that it it is a difference in the way that that particular person may be treated, whether it be male or female, child or or um, um, adult, or, you know, even someone from another country, that mm-hmm. so many times in order to build the case later on, they want that person either in custody or uh, arrested. And sometimes, and this is what we run into quite often, is they're arrested in order to keep them in a specific place to be a witness. Mm-hmm. We haven't really run into that here in Summit County. Um, what we're mostly seeing is a lot of um, people that were originally identified as prostitutes and then arrested, and then the story kind of comes out and evolves, and we kind of then realize, you know, no, this isn't a prostitute, it's actually a victim. And we're seeing this uh, uh, occurring a lot um, mm-hmm juvenile court system. Um, however, based on the recent legislation that's passed, we are very fortunate that there is no such thing as um, child prostitution anymore. So anyone under the age of 18 um, cannot be arrested for prostitution. They would be considered a victim of human trafficking um, through the safe harbor law. So juveniles are, are a lot um, kind of coming out. I hate to say we're identifying them more so. Um, and the, the agency that I spoke of earlier that has, has a opened their shelter um, or their safe house um, really focuses on reaching out to individuals who are, quote, in the life, um, you know, maybe prostitutes now. However, um, they weren't always prostitutes. Maybe they were trafficked, um, and that's kind of the world that they were exposed to and thought that, you know, that's all that they know all how to do. Right. Yeah, and so we're we're kind of we're at the education point right now, letting people know, you know, what's the difference between prostitution and human trafficking, and letting these victims know that um, really that they're victims. That they and it's it's a it's a shift in how we think about things, and I really feel you know for for the law enforcement, it's years and years of focusing on you know looking at someone as 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 such as a prostitute, and then having to just change your whole thought process and viewing them as a victim. So it's going to take a long time for law enforcement to totally switch over to that. Um, And I have to just back up. Not all prostitutes or human trafficking victims need to make that clear. Um, But the 
Attorney General's office um, has mandated here in Ohio that all of our law enforcement um, receive a webinar training um, to identify victims of human trafficking and also how to um, be cognizant of kind of what they've gone through and be aware that when they're conducting their investigation and interviewing them. So, you know, again, we have to give credit to the Attorney General's office who's who I, who's making an effort to know that law enforcement, um, really it starts there to identify is it a victim or is it someone that we need to press charges against. Mm-hmm. Hey, I want, I want to ask you also that bring me to the point when you were talking about notification and whatnot, um, and, and writing along. Uh, do you also have the law uh, mandated whereby any victim pr- prior to c- calling your nonprofit in or not, they have to give them give them a card regarding victim services that may be based, you know, with state government or county or whatnot. You know, here's here's a card of who you can contact. Yeah, we are. Um, our victims' rights, our Ohio Revised Code 2930, really focuses on a lot of victims' rights. One being that the officers or law enforcement, upon meeting a victim, does give them. Um, some jurisdictions are different. Some it's like a tear-off sheet that they hand them. Some it's like a little brochure, business card, of different options that they have, whether it be um, our agency, victim assistance, or the domestic violence shelter. So again, that our law enforcement are very cognizant that victims need more than what law enforcement can provide. So they're mm-hmm. they're fortunate to hand those out when they when they do. So are you are in your county, are you the main kind of go to agency and you're not you're not affiliated with government. We have tons of government here, government services in our state. Um and then we also have nonprofits, but I'm saying it sounds like they they prefer to go to you versus any other entity, is that right? Yes, we're the only um, nonprofit agency that works hand-in-hand with law enforcement and gets called to the crime scene. There are other victim service agencies. Um, There's four of us in our county, Victim Assistance, uh, Battered Women's Shelter, who only serves domestic violence victims and has a a shelter. There's also the Rape Crisis Center, and they do provide hospital advocacy in conjunction with our advocates. But we try to um, make sure that they are primary. So they go to the hospitals anytime a victim um, presents or a survivor presents for um, a forensic exam, medical exam. And... um, However, after that, um, we finally have another amazing program out of our Summit County Prosecutor's Office. And um, our current prosecutor, um, Sherry Bevan Walsh, has been there for, oh, I don't know, (laughs) a long time now, Um, over 15 years, I would say. And um, she actually started a victim services division, and they currently have, I think, five advocates um, headed up by a a director, Crystal Baker, who um, really focuses on helping the victims and ensuring that their rights are are met throughout the the court process, throughout the felony process. So 
so when you look at the whole big picture in our community, um, victim assistance goes to the crime scene, and um, then if need be, they're able to go to domestic violence shelter, better women's shelter, and if they go to the hospital, rape crisis center helps them. Um, but then the next morning at arraignment, um, victim assistance program is able to help them throughout the court process. And again, with the help of Battle Women's Shelter Court Advocates, we both can help with the need for protection orders. And then following that, um, we help throughout the entire misdemeanor case. And then if it does go into felony, we transfer that over to the advocates at the county prosecutor's office. Um, all of that being said, our agency is the only one that provides trauma therapy. So we have a licensed trauma therapist on staff, and she is able to provide counseling free of charge um, at our victim assistance office to any victim um, for as long as they need and any type of victimization. And it can come from any referral from any of those victim service agencies. So or really, did you say for as long as they need? Say again? As long as they need, yes. As long as, oh, we only have yep. six, ten sessions that our state pays for, and that's it. <laughs> oh, no, we have some two years. Wow, that's yep. great. Yeah, Wonderful. very fortunate. Yeah. So we we, are, we like to think that we provide services from the crime scene to recovery, and um, it really takes all of our victim service agencies to do that together. Yeah. Well, well, I'm I'm just I'm I'm very very impressed. I'm I'm so glad uh, we've had this conversation. We have about three minutes left. Can you touch on very uh, briefly, just so that people know, with regard to what you do in in charge uh, with regard to victim impact? Because it's a little different that people sure. know. Yeah. Um, victim impact like statement that. is something that we do help. Um, individuals that have been victimized by a juvenile offender. And so through our juvenile court system, for adults, if there's an adult that is providing a victim impact statement, the probation department helps them with that process. And um, when legislation passed where it was mandated that um, victims who were victimized by a juvenile were able to address the court and provide the victim impact statements, our founder had um, a lot of influence with passing that legislation. And because of that, just the relationship that he had with the court system at the juvenile court, um, they went ahead and, and just had an agreement that an advocate from victim assistance would be that person that would assist them or assist any victim who, mm-hmm. young or old, to help them through the victim impact statement, and then we submit that to the the judge, um, Linda Tiodosio, who's also been a judge for quite some time now, um, and really allows them to address the court. And um, mm-hmm. so it's a partnership that we have, and it really works to make sure that we're a neutral party. Um, yep. um, same with the probation department, a neutral party that's not going to to sway the the victim into writing whatever they feel. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, can you can you uh, give us your contact information again? At the uh, would you be amenable if someone would like to chat with you in terms of maybe uh, incorporating some of your good ideas if they would like to? Absolutely. No, I, I'd love right? to help anyone, but I also would love to um, hear about others as well who have similar agencies because we are unique. So yes. if there's someone who just like to chat, um, you can reach me by phone. Phone number is 330-376-2000. Mm-hmm. 
1-800-242-0040. And also online, you can find our website. We're on Facebook. We're also on pretty much all the social media victim assistance program. Um, and my email is lgram at victimassistanceprogram.org. Very good. And will you please stay in touch with us, too, because it's always good. We, perhaps we can feature you again, and who knows, maybe collaborate on something. We want to tell you about the evidentiary abuse affidavit as well. So thank you, Leanne. It's been a pleasure. Delilah, do you have any parting thoughts? Well, I, I'm just very pleased to hear of all of the resources that you are making available, ah. and um, I think you're doing a great job. Yeah. Thank you very much. We're proud yeah. of you. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Thank you. I hope to to be able to come back also and share share our next journey with you. Well, that that would be great. So be sure everyone to uh, listen on the archives if you haven't been able to listen live. And we're going to have to close out for this evening. And we'll see you next week for another edition of Shattered Live.